Sometimes the organ has a mind of its own. <laughs> That's a good thing in church. We were open to surprises. This sermon is the second part of today's three-part series, meditating on connections between the prophet Samuel's calling, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and martyrdom, the Southern freedom movement that shaped him, and y'all are probably saying, now that's already enough, <laughs> and how these stories can inform and strengthen every baptized person's skills in contemplation, which is the prayerful act of listening to God, and social action. Those things are always married. In honor of Dr. King's Black Baptist heritage, today's sermons even have a title. And I rarely entitle sermons. Samuel's Challenge, Martin's Opportunity. At the 8 a.m. liturgy, we meditated upon, upon Samuel's challenge and Martin's opportunity in hearing God's voice as being intergenerational in nature. He needed Eli, his much older mentor, in order to recognize the voice saying, Samuel, Samuel, late in the midnight hour, just as Dr. King needed his grandmother Jenny's example to fuse prayer and social action in his public ministry. At the wilderness this evening, we will meditate on the incarnational nature of Samuel's challenge and Martin's opportunity in hearing God's voice. And in the few moments we have together in this 1030 hour, we will meditate on Samuel's challenge and Martin's opportunity as a matter of imagination, intergenerational, imagination, and the third, of course, tonight, incarnational. And you've now deduced that my other nod to Dr. King's Black Baptist heritage is alliteration. It must also be noted that when I say Martin, yes, I am referring to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but I'm also using his name as shorthand for all of the everyday black Americans who resisted the tyranny of white supremacy through public demonstrations and private acts of dignity, millions of whom will never be covered on television or movies or in books. One of those sites of imagination making was and is the black church, a community in which Dahlia King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s paternal grandmother, found solace amidst a painful domestic life. Church was one of the only places Mrs. King and her children could find peace. Through soaring poetic hymnody, preaching and testimony, black forms of Christianity resisted white supremacist articulations of a God who sanctions enslavement, segregation, lynching, inadequate housing, unequal education, and barriers to dignified work and health care. 
embedded in poetry, song, and sacred rhetoric was the playful theologically and anthropologically sound assumption that human beings bear the image of God and that differences in color and accent and language and geography and custom and background are the creative, imaginative work of a God who delights in variety. White theological assumptions for a great swath of Christians in the mid-20th century, and unfortunately for some today, reinforce the status quo of unsustainable violence and inequality. It is said that in the days the young prophet Samuel first heard God's voice, the word of the Lord was rare. Visions were not widespread. It's not unlike the early days of the coronavirus pandemic when many were suffering from social isolation. Human touch was rare in those days. In-person encounters were not widespread. Imagine that first embrace after months alone, that first peck on the cheek from a parent after a year or so away or a loved one or a long distance significant other. How did that feel? I remember friends and members alike saying things like, I went to my first party in over a year and I didn't know what to say or where to hold my hands or how even to stand next to other people. Y'all remember that? When that which is rare suddenly becomes common, it takes time to adjust to its presence. What am I to do with this voice saying, Samuel, Samuel, the boy prophet might have asked Eli? God's intimate overture towards Samuel was chasmed by its rarity. Imagination, Eli seems to tell him, bridges that chasm, marrying his intuition to his experience. This is no different from the black women domestic workers in Montgomery, Alabama in 1956 who boycotted their city's racist public transportation system, carpooling and walking to work until substantive change came. According to Jonathan Eig, author of King, A Life, which I read earlier, I say earlier this year, earlier this month, um, and what's fun about this book, King, A Life, is that it's the first definitive biography of Dr. King written in 37 years. Can you believe that? He says this. When a minister stopped to give a ride to a woman who had walked a long way, he asked if she felt tired. Well, my body may be a bit tired, she said, but for many years now, my soul has been tired. Now my soul is resting, so I don't mind if my body is tired because my soul is free, end quote. That, friends in Christ, is an exercise in imagination. In this woman's walking, 
she joined a mass movement of people who were actively, faithfully, defiantly marrying what they knew to be the case to a world resurrected anew through dignity. And what did she and others know to be the case? That they, in their blackness, in their heritage of being kidnapped and held for centuries as property, in their musical, architectural, artistic, political, scientific, and other contributions to society, and in their mundanity and ordinariness, they were full of humanity, of worth, of value. And a white supremacist power structure, no matter how powerful, could not penetrate the rich, soulful, musical imagination of a whole people. Attack dogs, weapons, incarceration, taunting, and economic intimidation were and are no match for a people who can sing. On one occasion in 1966 or 1967, Dr. King rose to offer a sermon but was interrupted by the Holy Spirit in the person of Mahalia Jackson, the greatest gospel singer of the 20th century and a very close friend of the King family. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, the contralto vocalist intoned, and the walls came tumbling down. Clapping their hands, the congregation joined their voices to hers to finish the Negro spiritual. This poetic, extemporaneous expression recalls the ancient biblical story in which the Israelites encircled the fortress city of Jericho, Earth's oldest inhabited city, not with weapons or violence or blunt force but with musical instruments and their voices. After the seventh round of marching and singing, the walls did indeed come tumbling down. And tumble down, they did. And humbly and graciously, I today put every wall on notice be they in ancient Jericho or the more recent Berlin, you are destined to tumble in the face of imagination. Amen. <laughs>